Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. We are in uh, Proverbs today, so go ahead and start turning there. We're in chapter 18 of Proverbs. I would just say this. They made an announcement earlier for the men's ministry about the man God uses, Henry Blackaby's book. It is a really, really good resource. Uh, it's, it's excellent. And I, I would highly recommend it to the guys attend the study or at the very least pick up the book and read along with them. It's really, really a good and valuable resource. It, it's made an impact in my life. Um, so I encourage you in that regard. I also want to take some time. I want to pray for this movie outreach on, uh, on Friday night. We... Uh, made the decision earlier in the week to triple the size of the venue just based on the response that we were getting from people. And um, so I don't know if it'll exactly work out to this, but 100, 125 guests are coming, visitors, people that need to hear the gospel message. Maybe people need to hear a message about reconciliation with others. So let's just pray for that. Sound good? So if you're bringing a guest, you've already asked them, you took this step and you courageously went out and invited someone, would you stand up because I want to pray for you and your friend? Oh, boy, look at all the scary people. Okay, the rest are bringing their wife, I guess, or what's the deal? Okay, whatever. The Lord knows. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the many guests that will be coming. Thank you for these uh, that are standing right now that uh, stepped out and encouraged, invited someone to come and uh, to hear the message. And, Lord, we do pray that you would honor that step of faith and that you would save the soul uh, of that individual that they bring. Lord, I think of my dad coming, and I pray for him that he would get saved. Lord, we pray for uh, all of those that will continue to be invited. I know a lot of people in the room bought tickets and said, I'm going to get somebody, and I'll go door to door if I need to. And Lord, I pray you would bless their uh, fervency and their diligence, and you'd bring people out to hear. Lord, we do pray for all the logistics of this uh, coming together that evening, Lord, that you would bless it. I pray for Becky, your hand upon her as she communicates. Uh, the wonderful work you've done in her family's life. And, and Lord, I pray that that testimony of your present day working would, uh, would move hearts. And we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, our prayer. Amen. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord, friends. Okay. Last week was a tough message to hear, wasn't it? Yeah, but you know, it's good. It's good for us to be challenged from time to time. It's good for us to consider what is going on around the world. It's good uh, for us to ask questions of ourselves, where we are uh, with the Lord. I know a number of people said to me, I'm not sure I'm even saved, uh, considering what that fellow is doing. My wife thought that was funny. Uh, Nobody else, apparently. So, you know, you're probably saved already, but let the Lord challenge you. You know, maybe there are steps of faith that you can take that you haven't been taking and if he has been challenging you, you, then walk in obedience. Amen. That's where the place of blessing is. Well, as I said, we are in Proverbs chapter 18. We left off in verse 9 about two or three weeks ago. So you can scan down there in your Bibles uh, to verse 9. The verse reads this way. It says, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Now, we've considered a number of times already, so much so you're probably like, all right, we got it. 
Um, however, if I skip it here and say we already touched this, visitors here today are going to think, you know what, I bet he's lazy and he doesn't want to address this verse, and so that's why he's skipping over it. That's not the reason why, but we have looked at it many times. Solomon has talked about laziness. He's talked about slothfulness. He's talked about sluggardliness, if that's a word. He's talked about that as well. Here now he talks about, he uses the term slack, at least in the ESV. And clearly, Solomon is not a fan of laziness. And that's why he comes back to it a number of different times. Obviously, you might say the Lord is not a fan of laziness as well. What I find interesting to note here, again, a lot of times we think of laziness as, ah, well, you know, so what? I'm just a little bit lazy, no big deal. But notice what Solomon compares the lazy person to. He said, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. And so he compares the lazy person, the slack person, with the person that goes in and just destroys things. Now that we would have a problem with. If somebody comes in and just starts tearing this place up, we'd be like, hey, stop. Somebody's got to fix that. Someone's going to have to pay for that. What are you doing? And Solomon is comparing the destroyer with the one that is slack. Interesting, some versions quote that word destroyer, the one who destroys, as the waster. And the idea then is this. It's a person who wastes his goods by allowing them to go to ruin, that they don't pay attention to their things, they don't take care of their things or their goods, and thus their goods end up going to ruin or they end up being destroyed. So the destroyer wastes his goods, and the lazy person wastes, if you will, his or her time. And both of those individuals are exhibiting folly, and both of those individuals, as we've been learning in other places, they're going to come to poverty for doing so. So if you waste your goods, you waste your time, in both instances, you're going to end up at the same place. You're going to accomplish the same thing in both instances. The fruit of a destructive person's efforts is seen immediately. They go into the room, they tear the whole thing up, there's holes in the wall or whatever. It's seen immediately, while the fruit of the slack person's lack of effort, if you will, it's seen in the process of time. So you don't see it immediately. But over some months, over a semester, over a few years, all of a sudden you see that slackness bearing fruit, the lack of effort bearing fruit. And again, both are accomplishing the same thing. So Solomon's exhortation, and we'll move on from this idea of laziness, but Solomon's exhortation again is this, pursue diligence and pursue mindfulness in all the things you do and thus protect yourself from unnecessary ruin. Amen? All right, let the Lord speak to your heart. Verse 11, verses 10 and 11, actually, they, they go together. So we'll read those two together. Verse 10 says this. It says, we read, or excuse me, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. Many of us know that song. It was put to music and a, and a lot of us uh, grew up worshiping with that. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous man runs into it and is safe. So verse 10 speaks of this idea of a strong tower that the righteous man runs to for safety. Notice verse 11, however, it says this, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall is his imagination. So while the righteous man runs to a strong tower for safety, the rich man runs to his wealth, thinking that is his safety or her safety. Now, in the original languages, the contrast is even more pronounced. 
because there you, you see in the original languages the same words used over. Twice it happens here, and that is the word strong and the word high, actually. And so, again, the first verse, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. second verse says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. So there's a contrast that he is drawing there. It says in the first verse, it is, um, it's a strong tower. That is actually worded set on high. And so you have that word high there. Look at the second of those two verses. It's a strong city like a high wall. And so same word is used, two different words, same time. Let me rephrase that. Two different words are used two different times in these verses here, one for strong and one for high. And Solomon is trying to draw this contrast to what people place their trust in and what people should place their trust in. Verse 10 is fact. Verse 11 is fiction. It's a person's own imagination there. And what we too often do, we trust in our riches only to discover when we really need them that they don't offer what we think they're going to offer. And they don't offer the security we think that they're going to bring us. And Paul couldn't be more clear about the deceptiveness of riches. And so Paul says this in, in 1 Timothy. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be proud, nor, so charge them not to be proud, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. The deceptiveness of riches. We think if I got a full bank account, then I'm good. I have nothing to worry about. And then what do you do when your kid has cancer and no amount of money will be able to pay to heal your kid? Are your riches going to help you in that particular instance? No. What do you do when the stock market crashes and all of your money is gone? Just like that. Then what do you do? You say, we trust it. We think I'm okay. I got plenty of money, I got plenty of resources, and as Americans, overwhelmingly, compared to the rest of the world, we have it. Even if we're not the richest people in the world, we're not Bill Gates or something. Is he rich? Bill Gates is rich, right? I forgot. He's like the rich guy, right? Yeah. We think, I got all the money, I don't have all the money in the world, I'm not like him. You got far more money than most people in the world, likely, almost overwhelmingly in this room. And so, we cannot put our trust in those things. Now, I will say this, that trusting in riches is not just the problem that rich people have. Poor people can have the problem of trusting in riches. So if you have kids in college right now, you qualify as poor people, all right? You're paying all your money off to their school here, and you understand. But poor people can think, if I just had more money, everything would be great. What are you trusting in? You're trusting in riches. If I just had more money, I wouldn't have any problems. If I just had more money, I would be at peace so this is not just a rich person's problem. This is a, a, a message that Paul has for each of us, Solomon has for each of us, not to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but rather, again, look at verse 10, that the place we are to trust, the person or the thing that we are to run to, is the Lord. And so again, he says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous man runs to it and is safe. Now, there's a word picture there. So you got it in your mind. Try to picture it. The enemy is charging after you, pressing in on you, catching up to you, and right on your tail, and just about to overtake you. But you make it to the tower, you get through the door, and you slam the door behind you, and they put the big bar over it, and you run up to the top of it. And they're downstairs banging on the door, or we're going to get you, or we'll wait you out, or all of these things. But you're running to get to that tower because there is safety. 
That's the picture that Solomon is trying to paint for us. Now he says here the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. And he's certainly speaking of more than just God's name. And so you've seen the movies where the vampire comes in and they take the crucifix and they're, oh, the, the vampire can't handle it or whatever. Well, some people think almost that that's like that God's name or something is a weapon like that, where as long as I bring up the name Jesus or something like that, all my problems will go away because the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And so in the name of Jesus, and you, you, you inflect and all that kind of stuff here. That's not really what he's getting at. I do believe there is authority in the name of Jesus. I certainly believe that. And in certain circumstances, you can bring that up and the demon are forced to tremble and so on. But what Solomon is getting at here is not just in the name, but all that the name stands for. So again, it's more than just crying out to Jesus. When you run to the name of the Lord as your strong tower, that means you're settling yourself in to all that he is. It means that you're resting in him as your deliverer, for instance, because that's what God is. Again, go back and look. This is a fun little study for yourself. Go through the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, the Lord takes on many different names. And so it'll be Jehovah our provider, Jehovah Jireh, God our provider, or God our sustainer, or God our deliverer. And really his name that is used in the instances of those stories is based on what he had to show himself to be in those instances to his people. And so it's a wonderful study because you discover all that God is and all that it means to be resting in the name of the Lord. I encourage you to dig into that, look for that. Maybe one day we'll do a study on that. But to run to the Lord is your strong tower, the name of the Lord is strong tower, is to settle into all that he is. And so that he is your deliverer. Thank you. That if you come to him faith in faith, and you trust in his work for the forgiveness of your sins, then he is your redeemer. And so when you are one that finds yourself struggling in sin, you find yourself doing something, I can't believe I just did that, and you know that you need a covering for your sin, a cleansing for your sin, you know that there's one that paid the price for you. He's your redeemer. So in those instances, when the devil wants to convict you or uh, condemn you, you go to the Father. And you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I know you've washed me of my sin. You've redeemed me of the penalty of my sin. You run to the Lord as your strong tower in those instances. When you have to walk in faith and obedience, and you don't feel like you have it in you to do that, then you go to the Lord, the Holy Spirit, as your enabler. Because when God commands you to do something, he will enable you to do that something. He's never going to give you an instruction and say, hey, good luck with that. Nobody else has been able to, but maybe you're the guy. He's going to empower you. Do you want to be empowered? So when you're in those circumstances, you run to the tower, you run to the Lord and say, I need your enabling to withstand this temptation. I need your enabling not to respond this way to this person. I need your enabling to sit here and listen in love when I don't feel like listening anymore. And the Holy Spirit comes and he enables you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved. And so all of those things are found in him. There's an interesting, I think, parallel in the New Testament. In the book of Philippians, it's a well-known verse. I'll let you try and guess what it is while I take a sip of water. I bet it's on the screen, isn't it? <laughs> Paul writes in the book of Philippians this verse. He says, do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, you're familiar with it, right? Many of us know it. It's a passage about prayer, to, to live our lives in such a way that we bring everything to the Lord in prayer. Now, I want you to catch there, that word where it says, will guard your hearts, that's a military term which refers to a fortress or a garrison. Or to put it another way, a strong tower is what Paul is getting at there. And so I don't know if Paul has this particular verse in mind here, but again, the meaning of that term where it's translated in, in our versions as a strong tower, it literally means to be set on high so that no one can get to you. And that paints another picture for me. Because as Paul's talking about this idea of prayer, and Paul's talking about not being anxious for anything, oftentimes what causes us to be anxious? The cares of this world. And so all this stuff is going around us, and the bills are piling up, and our kids are struggling, and this, and I'm having a hard time with that. And they said, come see me in the office tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. And I have all these things that are coming upon me here, and they're, they're like enveloping me. But then I go into the tower, And I climb up to the top of the tower and I stand up there from the security of that place and I look down on them and everything is put into perspective, isn't it? So prayer then becomes our garrison. It becomes our fortress. It becomes our tower which allows us to gain perspective all of those particular things. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. So much more than just crying out, Jesus, help me, right? Anybody? Yeah, so much more than that. And so I would encourage you in that. Do a study on who the Lord is, the names of God, so to speak, and you'll be blessed in those instances where you need to rely on him for all those things. He then becomes our place of refuge and our protection, not anything else that we might trust our, entrust ourselves to, but him. Everything else, look at verse 11. Again, everything else really is a creation of our own imagination. And so it says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a wall, a high wall in his imagination. And so we think, well, I graduated college, now I have my degree. So I'll always be secure in this world. College graduates, is that what you found? No. You know, well, my bank account, my retirement has finally hit what the, the little commercial on TV said, I need to hit that bar graph line, I finally hit it, so now I'm good for the rest of my days. Is that true? No, all these things are vain imagination. Now I'm married and I'm secure and everything is fine. It's all vain imagination. And Solomon points that out here as for the rich man, he thinks his wealth will get him past here. Even the greatest of wealth can be lost in a moment. True security is based on really only one thing, the goodness of our father, of who he is and what he says he will do. Good enough? Enough to chew on there? All right, let's go on to verse 12. It says this, Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. We said this earlier, Solomon repeats many times uh, statements about laziness and sluggardliness, and he also does many times he repeats about pride and being haughty and the dangers of those things here. And so again, he brings it up here. Henry Ironside, he said this, it's needful that creatures so given to pride be again and again reminded of its dire result. It's needful that creatures so given to pride be mindful again and again be reminded of its dire result. Who's given to pride? Every hand. Come on, do it. It's, you know, every one of us, we are given to pride. Oh, I'm not. Sure you are. 
I'm one of the few that aren't. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? You are. We're all, we're given to pride, friends. And so it's good for us to be reminded again and again of the dangers of it to guard against us. Because as we've seen, pride is destructive to our souls. It's destructive to our relationships with other people. And so it's good for you to be reminded, just like my mom always reminded me, put your coat on when you're going outside because she knows the cold is going to be destructive to my body and make me sick. It's good to be reminded again and again, hey, this will get you. Be careful of that. Now notice the converse here of the haughty spirit. It says here, but humility comes before honor. Humility, it says there, comes before honor. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. In fact, I, I might add this to it, I, and I don't think I'm adding to the scripture. I think it says this in other places here, and that is this. Humility prepares a person for honor. That you're not ready to be honored unless you have become a person of humility. Because God delights to exalt the lowly. He tells us that in his word, and we see examples of that in scripture and in life as well, that God delights to exalt the lowly because he knows that he can use the lowly and that that exaltation will not go to their head. The Lord knows that, particularly in ministry or in things like that. The Lord knows that he can use the lowly because it will not go to their head because they've already been, they've already created within themselves or it's already been created within themselves the character of humility. And so humility prepares for honor. We've spent time looking at it. You can go back and read some of those other studies. Look at verse 13. It says, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and his shame. Have you ever done that? Many years ago, uh, on Saturday Night Live, how many of you currently watch Saturday Night Live? You don't want to admit it, do you? Okay, I understand here. It's too late at night for me, so that's one of my main reasons why. But years and years ago, Saturday Night Live, uh, they, they had a skit on there with Gilda Radner. Old people will remember with Roseanne, Rosanna Dana. Remember Roseanne, Rosanna Dana? She was from New York or something or another like that. What's the matter? That, <laughs> you did, man. Well, anyway, for those of you that are younger than Len, all right, but for those of you that are younger, what she would do, she would sit at this desk and she'd say, I'm going to give an editorial opinion here about this particular topic. And she was kind of funny with her voice and all this stuff. And she would go off three minutes, five minutes. She would go off on this particular topic. And then finally, the lady next to her would be able to interject or the man and would say, I don't think you quite understand. It, it wasn't this. It was that. And then she would kind of look at the lady, look at the camera, look at the lady and say, oh, never mind, like that. Alrighty? And anyway, I guess you had to be there. You can look it up. <laughs> you can look it up on YouTube. But I've been in this circumstance where I'm confident I know and I just lay in. And then someone says, we're not even talking about that topic. We're talking about this. Do you remember, Barb? Okay. Somebody called Barb. I'm going to just, poor Barb. And they were all upset. They had this strong southern accent. And they were all upset about the, the porn shop that was coming to town. So they were going to put a porn shop in town, according to what Barb understood. This lady called with a southern accent. And she went on this long thing. It wasn't a porn shop. It was a pawn shop. And, and, the, and the lady was like, I'm going to town council, and we're going to talk about this. And anyway, it was kind of something like that, right? I'm in the ballpark uh, in that. So anyway, never mind here. Few things can make a person look more foolish than speaking authoritatively about a subject when they don't really have all of the details. And it's folly. That's what Solomon says here. It's folly to speak about a matter 
when we do not have a full understanding of the matter. And it's even more foolish to make decisions and judgments on a matter when we don't have the information. So it's, fool, it's folly to speak about it when you don't really know what you're talking about. It's more foolish to make decisions and determinations when you don't really know what you're talking about. And so before you weigh in on a matter, make sure you get all of the facts that's the way of wisdom, to walk in wisdom. Before you weigh in on the matter, make sure you get all of the facts first. Look at verse 17. We'll skip down for a little bit. We'll go back. But in verse 17, it says, The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Similarly, how often we speak to one person and we're like, Oh, yeah, right on the mark. They know. That other person's crazy. Their opponent is crazy. Then their opponent comes in and you're like, Oh, yeah. This person's right on the mark. Their friend is crazy. And you, th- you sit with one and you think they are right. Because even the most conscientious person, even in that conscientiousness, there's always the likelihood that a partial account was presented for you. There's always the likelihood that the other person has some blind spots. And so, therefore, before making a decision, get all the facts, hear both parties. If possible, bring both parties together so that you can hear boom, 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 boom. Got it. Now I have all the facts that I heard from both individuals here. Because we are, ever since Adam, ever since Eve, we have a good, we can justify anything we do, can't we? And, we, and blame it on other people or explain it wasn't my fault, it was so-and-so's fault, and all these things here. So in light of that, it, it, wisdom is gain all the facts you can, have both parties involved here, so that when you make your decision, you're making a good, wise decision. Because anytime we make a quick, rash, sudden decision based on one-sided evidence we are exposing ourselves look at the verse there verse 13 now we're exposing ourselves to foolishness and we're exposing ourselves to shame when we do that do we want to save ourselves from that certainly so i don't want to be shamed i don't want to look foolish or anything like that so take your time hear out all the sides gather all the information and then you'll be much better equipped and educated to to weigh in on a matter make sense that's very practical stuff You can jot that down, take it with you, and do it tomorrow. Uh, I think that's awesome. Verse 14, it says, A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. John Corson said this, A broken bone heals easier than a broken heart. And we know that to be the case almost without exception. Emotional ailments are more difficult to heal, to mend, than physical. Because our spirit, we can bear all sorts of things physically. We can bear all sorts of things, but that broken spirit, you, you read studies of folks that how often the death rate surges after the holidays, at the beginning of a new year, as people just sort of give up. Uh, they did studies on the Holocaust where people died, if you will, of natural causes as opposed to like being shot or something like that, and how the numbers went way up right after uh, the Jewish holidays or right after the start of a new year and stuff. Because emotionally, it's so hard to heal when your emotions are heart, hurt. And so for us, if maybe you're doing well, and you're thinking about people you can care for, know this, that the need for great care for those that are hurting, not just physically, but emotionally, is very high. So I was thinking of this today. If someone physically was injured, they have a broken leg, you know, or something like that, and they're having a difficult time coming in here, we are good people. We'll make all kinds of concessions to help that person. We'll move people out of the way. We'll slide the chair, you know, over. Is this okay for you? But if a person is emotionally hurting, Do we go out of our way to offer the same amount of care for that individual in those particular circumstances? Sometimes we do. 
But often, you know, we're kind of frustrated by it. Oh, my gosh, here she goes again, you know, this kind of thing. And we need to be careful with that, okay? Because so often, as it says here, a broken bone heals easier than a broken heart. Okay, so take that with you and do with that as the Lord directs. Verse 15, it says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Now, it's because a wise person seeks knowledge that a wise and prudent person gets knowledge. And as I've said before, the wise individual never ceases to learn and grow. They never hit a point where I'm good, I don't have anything that I need to learn, but they are continually looking for ways to learn and to grow, realizing that they continually need to learn and grow. And they never come in their lives to the place where they cease seeking knowledge, and because of that, they never stop obtaining knowledge. You may recall back in chapter 4, if you were with us or you've read it before, Solomon was exhorting his son in those early chapters about the value of wisdom. This is what he said in in chapter 4. He said, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words and turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom. She will protect you. You love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get it. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her, and she will exalt you. Embrace her, and she will honor you. You see how important wisdom is to have and possess, that you should give everything to it? Solomon there, he taught us really two things about uh, the importance of wisdom. The first one was the importance of pursuing it. Again, get it, get understanding. At the time we looked at that, I paraphrased that as, whatever you do, get wisdom. Make that your life goal. So that's the first thing. The second thing that Solomon reminds us of there is this, is that we have to do more than get wisdom, but that we have to apply wisdom. So if you look down there, he says, do not forsake her uh, in one part of the verse. And then he says to cherish her in another part of that that particular passage there. So just because we know wise things or we have lots of information, that doesn't do the trick. Solomon's very clear about that. It's not just possessing all of this. And look at all my books that are filled. I read every one of those particular books there, and I could tell you what all of them say. It's not just about having knowledge. It's about applying that information. That's really what wisdom is. And the wise individual is, has given themselves to continually applying that wisdom. So if they learn some of the things that we're looking at, they make sure they apply the things that we have been looking at. And they keep seeking that and they keep doing that. And because of that, they keep growing in wisdom. And that's the exhortation. Verse 16, it says, a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before the great. A man's gift makes room for him. Now, there's a couple of different ways, significantly different ways that this verse has been understood uh, within the faith. Some see it this way, that Solomon's observation is really a repeat of what he has said in the past, that the wicked will use gifts, the wicked will use bribes to gain themselves access and accessibility to the great. That's how some see this particular verse. And certainly we know that's true. Solomon has said that very thing in other places there. Back in chapter 17, he called those gifts magic stones in my version, which really stood out to me. And there he clearly meant people try to use bribes to get access and, and turn the way of leaders 
um, to their own direction here. And so certainly it could mean that. Now, again, Solomon's not commending the practice. Look, you want to get something done, just bring a little cash to grease the guy's palm or something. That's not what Solomon is getting at. He's just simply observing the proclivity of the wicked to do such a thing. So that's one way that this verse is commonly understood and it is correct. We know that is the case. There's another way that this verse is commonly understood, may or may not be correct. The, the idea is still true. Whether Solomon meant it or not, I, I guess I couldn't say to you. But that is to see the word gift there in the, in the proverb and look at it from the perspective of how the New Testament tends to look at gifts or talents or abilities that a person is entrusted with by God, either at birth or at rebirth. And so we know that anyone that is in Christ has a spiritual gift and that God has given that person a spiritual gift and expects them to exercise that spiritual gift for his glory and for the benefit of his people. And so the second way that people understand this is that the gift, a man's gift makes room for him, is the spiritual gift and brings him before the great. That that lowly little gift that God gave you, if exercised faithfully, can open up opportunities for you, even among the great, to exercise that particular gift. You know, just a few weeks ago, Billy Graham died. Most, I'm sure many, if not all of you, know who Billy Graham is. Billy Graham was a great evangelist of uh, the, the 1900s, the 20th century, basically from 1950 uh, until the end of the century there. And he just died, 99 years old, went home to be uh, with the Lord. And he's a guy, he preached the gospel to millions and millions, they say hundreds of millions of people in person around the world over that 50, 60 year period of ministry. And billions probably through television and internet and the replaying of his um, programs and stuff like that on, on TV or the radio or whatever. And Billy Graham often referred to himself as, anybody know what he often referred to himself as? Well, a lot of things, I'm sure. Um, Billy uh, was one of them. Uh, but he often referred to himself as a simple son of a dairy farmer. He was just a simple son of a dairy farmer who the Lord used his gifts as he made himself available to the Lord that he might come before great. And he sat with presidents and kings and millions of people that would gather before him and he was able to advance the gospel. His gift, if you will, made room for him even in the presence of those that were great. And no doubt when he came into the presence of those that were great, they were thinking that they came into the presence of somebody that was great. God gives his children, not just Billy Graham, he gives every one of his children. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been gifted. Every one of us has a gift that we've been trusted, entrusted with to serve the Lord and to serve his people. And the exercising of those gifts is essential for the church to be enriched, the body of Christ to be enriched. Now, here's another thing I notice about this verse here. And it's this, if you practice your spirit, the spiritual gift that you have been given, and so you seek the Lord, what do I love to do? What just is, Lord, this is the greatest, this is what I was made to do. I just love doing this. I want to use this gift for your glory. If you practice the spiritual gift, gift that you've been given, the Lord will, here's the promise I would suggest to you, the Lord will open up opportunities for you to use that gift. He will make room for its use. That's what this verse, in, in my understanding of it, is, um, is promising. And what that means is this. So you feel you have this spiritual gift. 
I love to do this or I love to do that. I just want to use this for the Lord. How come nobody else is recognizing that I have this gift that I want to use for the Lord? You just keep being faithful. I feel like Joel Osteen. All right, but you just, I'm sorry, not a fan. Uh, you just keep being faithful. You just keep serving the Lord. And this verse says that the Lord will make room for you to exercise that gift. That means you do not need to force yourself into the situation. You don't have to be pushing people aside. You don't have to scheme. You don't have to connive so that you can have an opportunity to use your gift because if it's the gift that you want to faithfully serve the Lord with, he'll open up the door and he'll create that particular opportunity. No need to manipulate. No need to control. No need to do what you need to do to get discovered and all of that. This is an American idol. All right, you don't have to do all of those things to get to where you want to be here. If it's a gift of the Holy Spirit, God will make room for that person to be able to exercise the gift. The Lord looks for a man or a woman that is obedient and that is humble before him and other people. And those attributes combined with a loving desire to serve in his name and for his sake is all the would-be servant needs to concern themselves with. And the Lord will intervene and he'll create opportunities. And I think it's an important thing for you to consider, particularly if you feel as if the Lord has really gifted you in some ways that you're not having an opportunity now to exercise. And so I'll leave you with that. Verse 18. We already did 17, so let's go on to 18. We did 17 when we were looking at 13. Verse 18 says this, The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. We've talked about the lot a little bit in our study of Proverbs. And again, in the Old Testament... The lot was used as a final settlement of matters in which there was no clear direction one way or the other. That's all right. Look, let's just flip a coin or let's just roll the die or let's just play oddsies, evensies, and we'll, we'll come up with the answer in that. And so when believers were casting lots in the Old Testament, essentially what they were saying is, Lord, settle this matter. You make this particular decision that they felt themselves inadequate, inadequate to do so. And really, it was a way to have a just, peaceful settlement between what could be powerful contenders, which could break out into violence or whatever it might be. Now, of course, in the New Testament era, we have the completion of the written word. And so we can go to the written word for many of our decisions. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can pray. We can wait for his guidance and his direction. But even in that, sometimes there are matters in which we have to entrust ourselves to the providence of God. Sometimes we, have, we just say, Lord, I think you're leading in this direction. I certainly know you're not leading in that one. And so I'm going to step forth, and, and Lord, I'm just entrusting myself into your providence here. And so we seek the Lord's will. We weigh out the options. We pursue godly counsel. And then we act and we entrust ourselves uh, to him, knowing that he is the sovereign one. And sometimes I, I don't, I'm not even opposed to the idea of flipping a coin from time to time. And say, all right, Lord, I just leave it with you. And if they aren't supposed to come, let them get sick, and the other person will have to fill in. That's a horrible thing to pray. Um, <laughs> notice I didn't pray it about myself. I prayed it about somebody else. Um, but you get the idea. Verse 19, a brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. According to Solomon here, it is harder to win back a brother or a wife or a husband or a child that has been offended it's harder to win that person back than going out and conquering a walled city. And so then for that reason, care should especially be taken to prevent quarrels among those that we are closest to. 
And often that's when we let down our guard, isn't it? You know, we're at our place of business and we're on our best behavior. You know, we're out in public, we're on our best behavior. But then we go home and the same types of things that might frustrate us, we just let it out. Be careful because it is harder to mend a relationship with those that you are closest to than those that you are just sort of interacting with. So when a stranger cuts you off driving, and then they start, you know, yelling at you or whatever. You're like, yield sign, you, not me, you. And they start screaming at you and yelling at you. You probably get a little bothered, don't you? But hopefully, two miles down the road, you don't even think about it anymore. You've gotten past it. I can't believe that person. You're not going to have that thing going on in your mind for the rest of your day or week or year. But if you're close to loved one, your brother, your wife, your husband, your child, your mom, your dad, if they offend you, that stays with you because they're supposed to know better. They're supposed to love me. They're supposed to treat me better and all of that. That sort of offense cuts a lot deeper. And so fights between close relatives and friends are often the hardest to mend. Somebody has said this, civil wars are always the bitterest or the most bitter. Civil wars are always the most bitter. And the longer you take... And you're going to have conflict, but the longer you take to deal with conflict, what happens? The more entrenched each side becomes. Behind wounded pride, can't believe they did that, can't believe they said that, can't believe they won't come and say they're sorry. And then what begins to happen is it becomes almost nearly impossible for each side to bring themselves to reconciliation. How much better when we humble ourselves at the early stage of the quarrel rather than waiting three days or three weeks or three months to try and set things right again. And I think this is why Solomon, he said, or excuse me, uh, Paul said in the book of Ephesus or Ephesians to the people of Ephesus, he said, let not the sun go down on your anger. Because Paul understood. The longer you let it go, the harder it's going to be able to reconcile. Let not the sun go down on your anger. Don't even let it go a day or half a day or, or whatever it may be here. That's just good, simple, solid advice, isn't it? And many of us here that are married, we know, oh, I'm glad I learned that one early on. Because you're going to offend one another. You're going to wrong one another. I wronged my poor wife this week. And then I left, and I drove like I was going somewhere, and I came back, and I was like, i got to deal with this thing now or whatever because she has a mean face when she's upset. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that sticks with you or whatever. So I had to go and give it a puppy dog eyes and all that kind of stuff and And so it's not fun. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So you go before God. You go to the other person. You don't let quarrels fester until they become these declared wars. Solid, simple advice. Amen? All right. So remember that, especially with those you love the most. Verse 20. It says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Now, you've heard people say things like this, that so-and-so had to eat their words. You've heard that expression here. That's what's going on here when it talks about the man's stomach is satisfied here. So if, if you have to eat your words and your words were good words and pleasant to the person that heard them, well, then that's a delight to, to chow down on, right? Again, John Corson, he said this, wise, kind words are like a juicy steak. All right, that, you want to take that in unless you're some vegan person. Or something like that here. But most normal people, no, I'm just teasing. But most of us, we want to enjoy that. Well, ooh, a nice juicy steak. Now, if conversely your words are mean-spirited and your words are cutting, 
Well, that's not going to be so appetizing to go down into your stomach here. It's, uh, it's important to note that word translated stomach here, same word is translated other places in the Proverbs and other places as either conscience or spirit. So really that's what Solomon is getting at here. He's not, you think of it like your gut. We would talk about your gut or whatever. So he's talking about your conscience or your spirit. And it says this in Proverbs 20, 27, the spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord searching all of his innermost parts. That term, that's the spirit there of a man. That's the same word here that is translated stomach. And so the testimony of our consciences is either going to be with us or against us according to the manner in which we've kept our tongue. And so if we were careful with our tongue and the words we said to other people, then our consciences will either be with us or they will be against us. If we've been careful not to badmouth others or to give ourselves to gossip, the next time we come into the presence of that person, we're not going to be wondering, did somebody tell them what I was saying about them? Do they know what I said about them? Do they think I think these things about them? And so on. Your conscience will be clear, clean. You'll be in that circumstance knowing that the words of your mouth uh, allow for you to have a clear conscience. And then you can move forward just to complete total confidence and peace. It's so peaceful to be able to go into a circumstance knowing that you're not in trouble, knowing that you're not going to get caught for it. I used to get in trouble a lot at school. And then Jesus came into my life, and he changed me. And praise the Lord that he did. Boy, what a difference that when the principal says, Mr. Downs, you're like, yes, because I didn't do anything. You know what I mean? It's been two weeks. I haven't done a thing. You know, whatever. But when you're always doing something wrong and this teacher has to say something or that one, anytime your name is called, you think you're guilty. How good it is to be able to be peaceful uh, and to be at peace, I should say. It's so satisfying. And that's what Solomon's getting at here with the stomach. Let's go on to verse 21. A few more verses, friends. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Again, great potential, your tongue, for evil or for good, a source of encouragement and blessing, or to destroy others and wound others. And so the takeaway, think before you speak. Or as your mom always used to say, if you don't have something nice, don't say anything at all. Think before you speak. Mom's pretty smart. Solomon's the wisest of all time, but your mom is second. All right, She knew what she was talking about when she said those things here. Verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Now, the unspoken implication is he who finds a good wife finds a good thing. All right, it's not just in general, you know, whoo, I qualified. You know, I got Jezebel here as my wife or whatever. It, you got to find a good wife. He who finds a good wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. That's the unspoken implication. A good wife is a great blessing to a man, and a man who finds a good wife finds a treasure. Amen, some men? Amen. Certainly so. Paul would say, some of you didn't answer. We'll talk later, by the way. Um, you know. <laughs> Paul would say this. Paul would liken the, he, as he was talking about the marriage relationship, he would liken it to some things. And, and so this is what he said in the book of Ephesians. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so Paul there, in comparing the way that we care for ourselves, he's comparing that to how a man should love his wife. 
and he says that a man should cherish it. That word is a word which means to care for a great earthly treasure. And so you have things, you walk in your house, you just kind of throw them here, you throw them there, you don't really care about it. But then there are other things that you're very careful and you put them up on a pedestal. Or you're very careful that the dog doesn't go near it to knock it down or the kids with the ball are going to knock it down. So you put it in a place where it can be lifted up and it can be protected. That's how Paul says the husband should care for his wife. See his wife. Should cherish his wife. So husbands, cherish your wife for the gift that she is. A gift from the Lord. Wives, be the sort of wife that truly is a treasure to your husband. Husband, if your wife isn't that, Treat her as if she is until she becomes that. Wives, if your husband doesn't treat you that way, love him in such a way until he comes to his senses and begins to treat you as he should. And if you're not yet married, and a lot of us here are not yet married, if you're not yet married, you need to be very careful with who you allow yourself to pursue. Some people think, if I just get married, it'll be great. Not necessarily. You want to make sure you marry the right person. And you want to make sure you marry a person that is indeed a treasure or that does treasure you. Likely, no other relationship will contribute greater to either spurring you on toward godliness or hinder you from attaining it than your marriage relationship. Now, I'm not saying that absolutely, but likely there is no other relationship that will contribute more to spurring you on toward godliness or to pulling you away from godliness. And so again, the verse says, and I'm going to add, he who finds a good wife finds favor from the Lord. You know, one of the reasons why I'm a pastor today is because I'm connected with Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia and Pastor Joe and all of this. Pastor Joe has told me, one of the reasons we like you is because of your wife. He told me. The Lord must like you because he gave you a great wife, he told me. And indeed, I do have a fantastic wife. Don't I, dear? Yes, I do. She keeps me in line. Verse 23, it says this, The poor uses entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Now, I will say this. Not all rich people are rude, and not all poor people are humble and respectful. But the tendency is what Solomon is getting at here in the verse. Because oftentimes, one of the good effects of poverty is that it, it, makes, it creates, if you will, within a person a spirit of humility. And conversely, wealth often results in causing a person to become proud. And so the poor person often will speak softly, will often speak humbly, pleadingly, acknowledging with gratitude uh, whatever favor might come their way, while the rich person can often be rough and overbearing. Now, before the Lord, all of us are impoverished. Isn't that true? And so the wise person then will never allow their earthly goods to determine the attitude of their heart. But rather, they will, with Paul, continually ask themselves this very important question. This is from 1 Corinthians 4. Paul both both asks questions and reminds himself. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? What a valuable statement and question to remind ourselves and to ask ourselves, just to put ourselves back in perspective. Who am I? I'm what the Lord created. And he gave me the ability to do this and not to do that. He put me into this particular time and this particular place. Who am I? What do I have that I have not received? All that we are and all that we possess is by God's grace. And it's according to his wisdom. And the wise individual 
keeps that at the forefront of their thinking and guards their heart from going a place it shouldn't go. Our last verse this morning, verse 24 It says, oh boy, it says, a man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, a few other verses this morning, there's different ways people have understood this. And this verse is one of those as well, where there's some discrepancy in believers, good believers' understanding of this particular verse. And it really depends on the version that you are reading. And so if you take that original Hebrew and you look at it, there are a lot of different directions you can go with the way the words are used. None of them are unbiblical ideas. They're all biblical ideas that you can support other places in the Scripture. But it really does depend on what you're reading as to what this verse is trying to say. And so I just read to you the ESV. The, the ASV is right in the same line with the ESV. The ASV says this, SV I should say. It says, he that makes many friends doeth it to his own destruction, but there is a friend that stick closer than a brother. So if you're reading the ESV and the ASV, and that's or the ASV, and that's all you're reading, then the idea that is being communicated is that it's better to have one true friend than a host of companions that will lead you astray. That it's better to pursue one good friend or a few good friends than, well, I got a million people on Facebook that are my friend, but nobody even knows my name. All right, so that's one idea here. The RSV, the Revised Standard Version, reads this way. There are friends who pretend to be friends, ah, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. I added the ah um, for my purposes there. And the idea then is contrasting fair-weather friends with those that are loyal and stick with you through thick and thin. And so that's certainly important. You want to find a good, loyal friend. You want to be a good, loyal friend. I've always understand, did this verse, understood this verse, how it's written in the King James and the New King James. Uh, and it's this way. It says, a man that hath friends must show himself friendly, and there is a friend that stick close, closer than a brother. And the idea then, the thought then that is being conveyed is that friendliness wins friends, and that there are some friends that are even closer than others. And if that is where Solomon is going, then the sure way of having friends is by being first friendly. Treat others as if they were your friend, and before long they will be your friend. Often, what do we do? People try to fit in. I want to have friends. And so we try and fit in, and we find out what's popular, and what is everybody doing, and I'll do those things, or whatever. The reality is this. If you want to be a friend, then be friendly. If you're kind to other people, if you demonstrate a sincere interest in other people, people will take notice of that and they'll be drawn to you. You know, I like you. You're a good guy. I like you. They're drawn to you. They want to, you're a gal, I know, but they're drawn to that here. And the result then is you'll have friends. Now, it's not uncommon to hear people declare, you know, nobody really, nobody loves me. Nobody really cares for me. If you find yourself saying those things or thinking those things, then I would just respectfully, I would ask you to ask yourself, well, who am I really loving and caring for? Because when you start showing that sort of kindness and care to other people, then you will begin to find it returning back into your life as well. To use the, the words Jesus says, it will return back to you in good measure, pressed down and running over. As you begin to treat other people in that particular way, you'll begin to find yourself being treated in that particular way. So again, whether you're reading the ESV or the ASV or the RSV or the New King James or the King James Version, all of the ideas that those verses are communicating are true. One thing that's interesting is this. They all agree on that second line. 
So that second line says that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother, and indeed there is, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. As it said back in chapter 17, he is the brother that is born for, an advers- for adversity. In fact, he is a friend to all believers that sticks closer than a brother. And if you don't know him, he is willing to make himself known to you. He made himself known to me when I was 17 years old. It took me about four months to get it. But I can remember when I was 16 and he began to make himself known to me. He's probably doing it a long way, but now he was working overtime. And he entered into my life and he revealed himself to me and somebody else came along and all the needs were inside of me resonating and somebody else came along and spoke the words which resonated with everything that he was doing within me already and I got saved and I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and he forgave me of my sins he gave me his Holy Spirit he empowered me to walk in his ways and he'll do that in your life and if you don't know him yet as your Savior he will give you joy he will give you purpose he will enable you to walk in his ways he will forgive you of your sins and fill you with a sense of mission. And that's what he wants to do in your life today. If you don't know him and you'd like to, come see me after service and we'll introduce you and get you started in your walk with Christ. For the rest of us, rejoice in the fact that he found you and he knows you and he loves you. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Lord, it is so good to consider that yet again. Lord, that you made yourself known to each of us. Lord, I look at the 100 or so people that are gathered here, and many of them have begun a relationship with you. And to consider, Lord, many of us came to faith at a a similar time, and you were just at work all over the place doing what you do. And then we think of all the other churches and people that are scattered around the world. And, Lord, you delight to enter into the lives of those that don't yet know you and to forgive them of their sin and to set them on the path of righteousness. And, Lord, you did that in our lives, and we rejoice in it. Lord, help us to walk in your ways with eyes on you as we run hard after you. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, allow us to be uh, lights to those that are around us and that we might point people to the Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.